Good morning. This morning we continue in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, and in verse 40. And since it's been two weeks since we were in this book studying together, I want to remind you that in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel received a prophecy. He received a vision. And in that vision, the angel revealed to Daniel that there would be 77s of events, that is 77-year time periods, that would take place and would concern the history of Israel, that is, the future of his Israel. Now, we've talked about that, and we, we got to the place where we were discussing the last seven years of that prophecy, and so we discussed that during that seven-year time period, on the earth, two antichrists, and what is an antichrist? It's someone who either stands up to go against Christ or, more appropriately, puts themselves in place of Christ, that during those last seven years of unfulfilled prophecy, that two antichrists will appear. There is one who is very much a Gentile power from the area of Europe. And there is another that is sort of a, a, a Middle Eastern power from the area north of Israel. That can mean a lot of things, but generally it's Syria, Turkey. That's what we're talking about, to the north. And it's not hard to imagine enemies of Israel to the north of Israel. So as we've been talking about this, we've been talking about that second Antichrist, or the Middle Eastern one, sometimes called the false prophet, certainly in the book of Revelation. So that gets us into the time period. This time period has not begun yet. Those Antichrists have not yet been revealed. But as we were discussing this, We got to verse 40, and so you can turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, and what we learned about this second Antichrist, and as a recap, I'm just going to read it, I'm not going to comment too much, but it tells us that this king will do as he pleases in verse 36. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. The time of wrath is half of that seven-year time period, the last three and a half years. This is a recap of two weeks ago. For what has been determined must take place, and he, that is the second Antichrist, will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses. That would be the first Antichrist, sometimes called the beast or the first beast. A God unknown to his fathers, he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts, and he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Again, that first Antichrist. Who, and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land, that is the land of Israel, at a price. So that's where we left off two weeks ago. We're still discussing that second beast, false prophet, Antichrist. And we're going to now talk about, this is actually pretty good. We talk about how he's destroyed by God. And you all know how much I love that. I love it when a bad guy gets it. And I'm glad to say that the day is coming in our world where all who promote evil and wickedness will be held accountable. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you now ready to receive the rest of this vision and just take it into our hearts and to be encouraged 
Oh, Lord, having studied prophecy for decades, it's so easy to study and come away discouraged or frightened even, or distracted by trying to figure things out. But we know that you told us that you have revealed to us in your word things that would happen before they would happen that we might believe. So that is, we might be encouraged in our faith. We should come away from a study in your word encouraged. Not negative, not fearful, but encouraged to know that as the theme of this book has been repeated so many times, you are sovereign over all things. That is, you are in control not just of our lives and of the church, but of every single atom in the universe. We understand that, and that gives us the encouragement we need to study about things, not always good things, that will happen in the future, knowing that you're working all things together for our good. We ask these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So that was our recap. Let's, let's sort of pick it up now and read in verses, I'm going to read the whole section, uh, verses 40 through 43. That should give us enough to chew on. We're told that at the time of the end, and I just want to stop there and, and tell you and remind you, the time of the end is that last seven-year time period, sometimes referred to as Daniel's 70th week, for there were 70, or are 70, or the tribulation. Sometimes you've, you've heard it referred to as the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. It's referred to in a number of ways in the scripture. But we read that at the time of the end, the king of the south, that's the king of Egypt, the power to the south of Israel, will engage him, that is the Antichrist, also called the king of the north, will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood, and he will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape, and he will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt, with the Libyans and the Nubians in submission. Such a specific prophecy in terms of, okay, the Antichrist that we've been discussing, this power to the north of Israel that has not yet emerged, will emerge, and when he does, these are the things he's going to do. This is what's going to take place once this Antichrist is revealed in the future. And it's important we break it down because, you see, as we've gone through this prophecy in chapter 11, which we've been in for a few weeks, there are many kings of the north, many kings of the south, but ultimately there's a king of the north, that is, of the northern region, north of Israel, that emerges who's a little bit more than just another king. He's, he's, he's an antichrist. He's a, he's a king who does as he pleases. He's satanically inspired and, and, and motivated by Satan to, to do all manner of evil against God's people and to speak blasphemy against God. And because of this, we refer to him as the king of the north because he comes from the same area that the other previous kings of the north come from. Now, as I've described to you, as we've gone through a lengthy prophecy, much of which has already been fulfilled, most of which has already been fulfilled, we've talked about the king of the south being the king over the area south of Israel, Egypt, northern Africa. We've talked about the king of the north being the king of the area north of Israel, Syria, Lebanon, if you will, maybe Turkey, the areas north. And so as we look at this, we're using generic terms, but... This individual has been talked about a lot already, and now we learn this Antichrist, again there are two, 
will attack Egypt. And who is stuck in the middle of this conflict? Israel, referred to as the beautiful land, stuck as has been the case throughout this entire vision that has been revealed to Daniel from a a book or a record called the Book of Truth that was revealed from an angel to Daniel in this entire chapter. We've seen over and over again the king of the north, the king of the south. That is the power to the north, the power of the south, constantly engaging in conflict, and Israel stuck right in the middle. And remember this, this vision was given to Daniel so he would understand what would be the future of his people who he was praying for, that is Israel. And so we went through all the history and all the things that have already been fulfilled, but this is something that will happen in the last days at the time of the end. And there will be a king of the north, and there will be a king of the south, And by the way, even today, there are powers to the north and south of Israel, and no one would disagree that they are adversarial toward Israel, for the most part. So it's interesting, because if you look at our world today, I don't know that this will be the case when these things are fulfilled, but it's interesting that in the 1970s, some of us are old enough to remember, Egypt signed a peace treaty with Israel, and that has held to this day. And as they signed that peace treaty, it became interesting to consider this prophecy because the king of the north, who is clearly adversarial toward Israel, attacks or is attacked by, they they get into a conflict with the king of the south. And if you look at our world today, the king of the south is an ally. Now, I don't know that that'll be the case when these things are fulfilled, but it's it's just interesting to see how things are, are lining up that when these things are fulfilled, the scripture will certainly prove true. Amen? So let's see what will happen. Again, I can't predict it. The Bible isn't even trying to give us specifics. It's trying to give us an understanding of what we can expect to see happen. So this coming Antichrist will attack Egypt. And who's in the way? Israel. Israel will also be attacked. Many Middle Eastern countries will be attacked at the time of the end. And this king of the south that we've talked about will be a leader of Egypt and northern Africa, and he will engage the coming Antichrist in battle at the time of the end, or Daniel's 70th week. And this is going to take place during the three and a half years leading up to the abomination of desolation, or the first half of that last seven years. Now, apparently an independent Egypt will attack a European-controlled Syria. That seems to be what we've learned here, Uh, and this will all be led by the coming Antichrist. Now, you shouldn't be surprised that Satan sometimes inspires world leaders to wreak havoc, especially in this part of the world. When you think about the last hundred years in our world, is it hard to imagine a world where a European power tries to destroy Israel? Certainly not. Is it hard to imagine a world where there's conflict in the Middle East? even between Arab nations? No, of course not. So none of this should be really a surprise to us. None of this should make us say, well, how could these things happen? The important thing to know is that they will happen, and when they happen, we can be encouraged in our faith to know that God is in control. Amen? That's the point. That's really the point here. Well, the coming Antichrist will be a king from the north at the time of the end. Now, the time of the end... And I don't want to get too much into this because there will be several wars, as we read in Matthew's gospel, gospel, wars and rumors of wars, 
There will be several wars leading up to the moment that the Antichrist is revealed. And even after that, there will be wars. No surprise there. We live in a world where there seems to be wars all the time, constantly. Right now, Europe is involved in a conflict. Surprise, surprise. Right now, the Middle East is involved in many conflicts. There are conflicts throughout the world. So I've seen people get really excited and try to say, oh, this must be it. There's war in Ukraine. This is the time of the end. You have to be very careful because in the earlier part of the last century, when World War I started, everyone who believed in this way of thinking, reading the Bible and studying it in this way, came to the conclusion that we were in the time of the end. And churches were very much promoting this, and people believed it until it wasn't true. And then the church lost credibility because they, they, they were sort of looked at as, you know, sort of the, the, the sky is falling. Oh you, oh, yeah, you could apply this to anything. So when World War II came around, even more so you could make a case this might be the time of the end. Well, they did it again, and that all worked out, and people listened until they didn't anymore until they were proved wrong. So this is why it's so important. I've said this many times. I remember going to the, the Hawthorne Gospel Bible House when that was around. And, and I went to the bookstore, and I saw a big bin. And in the bin were all these books with Saddam Hussein's face on it that had been suggesting that he was the Antichrist. Oh, well, how did that work out? So you see, you have to be careful. If you're in the business of trying to predict the future, you're in the wrong business. And I'm not trying to do that today. I'm setting the stage and sharing what the word says, but in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, there's an interesting prophecy. Many people believe the war talked about in that portion of scripture in Ezekiel will happen before these things. Some, some very reputable people, believe it will happen after these things. Do we really know? No, we don't know, but we can guess or we can look at it, we can think about it. Interesting thing about that invasion that's talked about in Ezekiel 38 and 39, I encourage you to read it on your own, it seems to be a Russian Islamic invasion of Israel. And so what many people today are waiting to see is Russia decide to attack from the north. Again, not hard to imagine a world where that could happen, right? Certainly not. Russia's aligned very closely with Turkey, and they've invaded areas to the north of Israel, Georgia, not the state, (laughs) the country, Georgia, Uh, and they've invaded other areas, and, and now Ukraine, the Crimea. All of this looks like it could be setting up what we see in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So it's very plausible that the first thing that will happen is Russia will align with these Muslim nations and attack Israel from the north. Now, if that were to happen, and that's an if, I I have to admit, what the scripture says and what the prophecy predicts is that Israel's enemies will be destroyed by God in this prophesied invasion from the north. Now, whether this is the same thing or not, it doesn't seem to be. It seems to be a different conflict. But I want you to imagine with me a world where Israel's enemies have been destroyed by God to the north. That would change everything. Imagine suddenly the Islamic nations that have threatened Israel, including Iran, including the other Arab nations and non-Arab nations that are part of this Islamic world. Imagine if they launched an invasion of Israel and lost. Imagine that. That would change geopolitics profoundly. 
And so many people believe that uh, they will just, uh, the Islamic world will, will be not only destroyed but crippled, and this could mean that Europe will be dominant in the Middle East. <laughs> it's happened before. Go back 100 years during World War I and even World War II. So these things are themes that seem to be repeated. We've seen these things happen before. Uh, And this could explain why Islam may not be able to prevent the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, which they've been trying to prevent forever. (laughs) So I'm just throwing ideas out there. So you know that you say, how are the Jews going to be able to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount, given the conflict there? Well, what if there weren't a conflict? Just a thought. I don't know. We'll see. Well, the king of the north, that was the king of the south from Egypt, right? We talked about that. But the king of the north is, is going to be a leader of some power to the north of Israel. And it may not be an Islamic power. And in fact, he's not described as an Islamic leader. And it could be that the Islamic world, having been changed by the conflict talked about in Israel, will look very different in the future. And whatever power comes from the north, it will will be aligned with a Eurocentric world. So when this begins to happen, and you can only imagine because our world will change between now and then, clearly. He's going to send his army and his navy against Egypt, and he's going to invade many surrounding countries. The beautiful land, clearly a reference to Israel. In the book of Psalms, Jeremiah, Zechariah, those terms are used. We know what that means. And this is when the temple will be desecrated by the coming Antichrist and his foreign god. So what we're seeing is something happens. They rebuild their temple, whatever causes that to happen. And the Jews are then invaded by an Antichrist from the north. And he comes in very similarly to Antiochus Epiphanes in the past, desecrates the Jewish temple. And this happens in the middle of that seven-year time period. So some of these things we know, as many things we don't know, but some of these things are clear. One of the other things I find interesting is that Edom, Moab, and Ammon, which are now incorporated in a nation we call Jordan. Jordan is the area that was once referred to as Edom, Moab, and Ammon. In fact, what's the capital of Jordan? Ammon. So you see, this is the same area of the world. We know from what the scripture says here in Daniel that for whatever reason, Jordan is not under the control of this Antichrist. I can only imagine why, but they're not. Jordan will remain divinely protected from this coming Antichrist, And isn't it interesting that Jesus told the Jews in Matthew 24 that are alive during this time of tribulation to flee to the mountains. If they were to flee to the mountains to the east, they'd be in Jordan. I don't need to tell you that there's a West Bank, right? In Israel. It's a disputed territory. But if you cross the Jordan, you're in the nation of Jordan. And it's not hard to imagine you wouldn't flee west toward Europe to the Mediterranean Sea, would you? You wouldn't flee south to Egypt where the conflict is. You certainly wouldn't flee north where the Antichrist is coming from. So where would you flee? To the east. Where is that? Jordan. And God has told us in his word that he's going to preserve the Jews that escape Israel during this conflict when they're invaded. So yes, there is coming a time where Israel will be invaded and God will destroy their enemies. Ezekiel 38, 39. There's also coming a time 
where Israel will be invaded and they'll have to flee. And when will these things happen? I don't know. They will happen, but I don't know when. So as we think about this, it makes sense that if Jesus said flee to the mountains, he wouldn't tell them to flee to the mountains so that they wouldn't be safe. And we're told here that Jordan is spared. So we can put two and two together and come up with four, right? John describes a desert refuge for the Jews. Interestingly enough, in Revelation chapters 12, uh, actually 12, verses 6 and verses 13 through 17, he talks about a desert refuge. And guess what? He says they will be there for 1,260 days or three and a half years. So we put the pieces together, we connect the dots, and we begin to understand some things that are going to happen. Again, we don't know all the particulars, but Israel can expect to flee their land when they're attacked by this Antichrist in the future. Of course, this will come after they sign a treaty with a Gentile world power from Europe who is in league with this power to the north, to Antichrists. And when they sign that pact, it'll be peace, peace. But as Jesus said, sudden destruction comes quickly. So yes, there is coming a day of another holocaust. There is coming a day when Israel will be on their heels and they'll have to escape, but God will protect them, as we're told, and as we'll study soon in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. Now, Jesus will return and set things right, amen? But until that, there's this seven-year time period. So we've learned a few things. We also learned that he's going to extend his power and his rule over many countries, including Egypt. So Egypt is one of the last powers, Egypt and northern Africa, again, currently have a peace treaty with Israel. One of the last powers to be subjugated by this king of the north, who despises Israel and is blasphemous toward God. He's an antichrist. And after Egypt falls, there'll be no protection for Israel. And Israel, the Jews, will have to flee. That's what we learn in these few verses. And one of the other things we learn, he's going to plunder the riches of Egypt, and he's going to conquer Libya and Nubia. Now, these are areas, Libya and Nubia, the countries of northern Africa, they're going to fall to the Antichrist. I just want to back up a minute. I've studied the progress of the Nazis during World War II. I've watched many films, many documentaries, and and I'm fascinated with history, but specifically the rise of Hitler because he was able, with the help of Benito Mussolini and others, he was able to do so much so quickly in terms of evil behavior and conquering areas. And it's no surprise to anyone who studied this that northern Africa was one of the main battlegrounds early on in the war, as was Greece, as was the Middle East, as was Sicily, all of these areas. And it's interesting because history tends to repeat itself, right? There's strategic reasons why battles are fought in the way they are. It shouldn't surprise us that that will continue in the future. And so we see these pieces, they're not so completely out of the realm of possible at all. And we're told these things will happen. Now, they're so likely to happen based on historical perspective that many people feel, oh, they already happened. Oh, that happened. That's so similar. But I've told you already, the Bible has this thing called thematic prophecy, where things happen over and over again until they're completely fulfilled. So we we shouldn't be surprised that some of these things seem to have been fulfilled already in the past. But many of them, actually a lot of them, have yet to be fulfilled. So this is giving you an idea of what to expect. But please, you can't go write a book and put a timeline together. So many people come to me after a study in prophecy. Oh, Pastor Tim, could you give me a timeline of everything that's going to happen? I would love to. I can't, but I would love to. I'd also love to tell you what the market's going to do on Monday. 
or what the pick six is going to be on Tuesday or whenever they play that. I've never played it. You know, I, I just want you to understand, we don't know. But wait a minute, what's the theme of the book of Daniel? God is sovereign. Who knows? God knows. So we don't need to worry about it. This should not create anxiety. If studying prophecy creates anxiety, close the Bible and study the Psalms until you don't have anxiety. And then start to study prophecy again. Now, Europe is going to be incorporated into a revived Roman Empire with ten divisions. Daniel made that very clear in chapters 2 and 7 of this book. So we know that Europe emerges, the Middle East to the north of Israel emerges, uh, the Middle East or the northern Africa to the south is conquered, but there are other powers in play. And I think a lot of people come to the wrong conclusion. They think, well, the world is going to be controlled by the Antichrist. Everything is going to be under his control. Not even remotely close to the truth. We've already read how he has to conquer Egypt. We, he doesn't conquer Jordan for whatever reason. I don't know why or how they, they manage to stay out of the conflict. But they do. The United States is not mentioned. So don't, don't get into this thinking that you can somehow put the United States into prophecy. Because it doesn't concern us. It concerns Israel. But there are other powers in the world, like there are today, that play a role in the last time events. And we read in verses 44 through 45 that the coming Antichrist will be destroyed in the time of the end. So we followed what takes place through those seven years, the first three and a half, and now the middle of the week. And now we're talking about the last three and a half years and the things that will happen. And we read in verse 44, but reports from the east and the north will alarm him. Now remember, he's attacking toward the south through Israel against Egypt, and he gets reports, so there's news from the east and the north, which will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So what we've learned is this power, this Antichrist of the North, is going to wreak havoc in the Middle East. But he's not going to conquer everyone. He's not going to be completely victorious. He's going to be destroyed. And, and what I will suggest to you is there are a group of people called the kings of the East. In the book of Revelation, they're referred to as the kings of the East. In reference to Israel, it's some power to the East of Israel. Hmm, let me think. Are there any world powers to the east of Israel? Well, there are many. Some have suggested it's communist China. Some have suggested it's India, Pakistan, uh, Indonesia, where there are more Muslims than there are in the Middle East. You, who knows? It, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter who it is. It's going to happen. And he's going to get this news, and maybe, just a thought, he attacks Egypt thinking, oh, good. Maybe he's going to try to attack Jordan, but before he can do any of that, Guess what happens? Enemies from the east attack him. This is a world war on a scale greater than we've ever seen in our world, even with World War I and World War II considered. So boil it down. There's going to be another world war. There may even be several. But this one is a war to end all wars, which is what they called the Second World War. So I'm just suggesting to you that you don't get too comfortable in this world because this world is going to perish, and one day you're going to be in the presence of God. Until then, God will preserve you, protect you, bless you, care for your needs. And if you should suffer for the cause of Christ, so be it. 
Because God is sovereign, amen? Okay, so let's, let's break this down. Now, one of the things we learn in the book of Revelation in chapter 9, John tells us that four fallen angels gather 200 million troops from the east. So clearly, there's, there's another power there that is vying for control against this Antichrist. John tells us of their westward march across the Euphrates River, and in Revelation 16, the Euphrates River would stand in the way. You blow a few bridges, and they can't get to the Middle East. Guess what happens? God allows the river to be dried up, and now they can cross. And John also tells us that their gathering is Satan's doing. So Satan, it's interesting, you need to understand, Satan doesn't pick sides. I think we think that Satan's a Democrat. Or at least a progressive liberal. Satan never picks sides. By the way, I'm an independent, okay? I'm not interested in the Republicrats or the Democrats. But we, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but listen, wait, 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 wait. Satan doesn't pick sides. He's on whose side? His side. So he wants to kill and destroy. So does it surprise you that his plan is to get European powers and Middle Eastern powers to destroy Northern African powers and then raise up Eastern powers to destroy European powers and Middle Eastern powers. It's almost like he wants to destroy everything. <gasps> yeah. See, I think we tend to think it's like a football team. You know, the blue jerseys and the red jerseys. It's not like that. Satan wants to destroy your life and every life on the planet. And he has an active campaign to destroy as many of them as he can in the womb. And to destroy as many lives as he can through war and conflict disease, plagues, pestilences. We know something about that. Every act of destruction on this planet is at least influenced by Satan because he is on one person's side himself. And his goal? Destroy all life. Okay. Now it begins to make sense. Because otherwise it doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't. But when you consider that, it all makes sense. So all of this is Satan's doing, and the king of the north, who is inspired by Satan, this Antichrist and his army are going to encamp to face the kings of the east, which are inspired by fallen angels, in the valley of Megiddo. It's where we get the term Armageddon from, the valley of Megiddo. Megiddo is located between the seas. It's located between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. The beautiful holy mountain is clearly Mount Zion, which is more of a mountain range, and Mount Zion is the, the place where the city of Jerusalem is built. So we're given some specifics here. So he invades Egypt, then he comes into Israel, just like Antiochus of old, and he begins to maybe even launch eastward when he's attacked by the armies from the east. And he'll probably expect to fight them. But we're told in Zechariah 14 that this is the moment when Jesus returns not for his church, for his people Israel. Now, that's a detailed study, and Zechariah 14 has a lot of things we could talk about, but just, just leave it at that. The Lord is going to return at the moment when the world is on the precipice of destroying itself. 
Satan's plan will be thwarted, and we'll study it in the book of Revelation. But he will bring, Satan will bring the world to the brink of annihilation. And it won't be climate change that's the existential threat to our world. I promise you whether it gets warm or cold isn't a factor. The existential threat to humanity is Satan and the spiritual forces of wickedness in our world. And what you can expect is more of the same as we get closer to that day of the Lord's return. But be encouraged. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer, Jesus would say. In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. The day will come where they think it's all over. And you'll have massive armies gathered in the Middle East at Armageddon. Again, where we get the term, the Valley of Megiddo. It's why that term is used to describe the end of the world. And instead of a battle, the Lord returns, and that destruction is described in Revelation 19. It's not a battle. It's a bloodbath. And all the enemies of humanity and all the enemies of Christ and his people and of the Jews are destroyed by the brightness of his coming, and he destroys them with the word from his mouth, the same voice that said, let there be light. Why do we worry? Because we don't remember these things. Brothers and sisters, that's an encouraging word. Amen? The king of the north will be destroyed and no one will come to his aid. Remember that in verse 45. The battle of Armageddon will never actually be fought. It's not really a battle. It's a bloodbath. And Jesus will completely destroy all of his enemies. Okay, so what's going to happen to Israel? Well, God is going to protect Israel. I already shared with you how they, they, they will more than likely flee to Jordan or the area to the east, to the mountains, as Jesus instructed them. But we read in verses 1 through 4, let's read that in chapter 12, at that time. So, you know, the logical conclusion in, in your way of thinking would be, okay, I just read about what's going to happen in the world. What about Israel, right? Well, at that time, Michael, the great prince, in verse 1, who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, speaking to Daniel, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. And multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel... Close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. So he's saying, this isn't now, but this will happen. Michael, the archangel, you ask, how could God's people be protected? Michael, the archangel, who protects the people of Israel, will arise at the time of the end. He is going to protect them. God is going to protect them through him. He's an archangel, powerful enough to rebuke the devil, according to the book of Job. Remember, he had helped Gabriel in chapter 10 of this book while he was detained with another spiritually wicked power referred to as the king of Persia. He assisted Gabriel in protecting Cyrus, the king of Persia, from the prince of Persia, who is a demonic power. We talked about that in chapter 10. And he protected Israel during their years of captivity. He's protected them throughout the ages since. God has allowed 
holocausts and pogroms and destruction and persecutions and antifathas, all of this, but they have never been destroyed because God protects them. Michael will arise to protect them and deliver them through a time of great distress. Again, the time of the end, a seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week, the time of the wrath, which is called, uh, it's called the time of wrath. That's the last three and a half years of the time of the end. This is a time of unprecedented distress for Israel, and it is the last three and a half years of Daniel's prophecy. It's going to be completed when the power of Israel has finally been broken. That is, they've surrendered their hearts to God. See, God's doing a work in the hearts of his people, as well as doing a work in the world. The people of Israel, whose names are written in the book, that is the book of life, will be delivered during this time of distress. Now, they're going to be delivered after the last seven years of Daniel's prophecy. So, they're going to be delivered at the end of the seven years. I believe the church is going to be raptured before the seven years begin. Some people believe the church will be raptured before the last three and a half years begin. But here's the important truth, regardless of what theory you adhere to. Are you ready? God protects his people, amen? Very simple. God protects his people. So this is going to include all the faithful remnant of Israel that's still alive when Messiah returns. Their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, talked about throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. And we're told that there is going to be a resurrection in the last days. Now this is interesting because we're told that, and I'm going to read it again, it says, multitudes in verse 2 who sleep in the dust uh, of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That's not to say it's all going to happen at once. In fact, the book of Revelation makes it clear it happens over a period of many years. But here's how it goes down. Let me give it to you. The righteous, anyone who's righteous in Christ, the righteous will be raised to everlasting life. And much of this will take place at the end of that seven-year time period. But remember, this is going to include all the faithful tribulation saints who were martyred during that time period, the time of wrath. And this completes something referred to in John's gospel as well, referred to as the resurrection of the righteous, or in the book of Revelation, the first resurrection. There's a first resurrection, there's a second resurrection, there's a first death, and there's a second death. We are spared from the second death, but we all experience the first death. Unless you're raptured, in that case, you're brought into the presence of God. So we're talking about the first resurrection. Now the first resurrection, guess when it started? On that Sunday morning, when Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus was the first to receive his resurrected body. It's interesting that then we see the faithful saints of the Old Testament being resurrected in Matthew 27, on the same day that Jesus is resurrected. So, many believe that those who were faithful in Christ and in God, on the resurrection, received their resurrected bodies and ascended into heaven. That's debatable, but that's a thought. Now, the dead in Christ will be resurrected along with those who are alive at the rapture of the church, regardless of when you believe that will happen. That we know according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The two witnesses who stand for God, who are slain in the middle of that seven-year time period, are resurrected three days after their bodies are defiled in Jerusalem. We'll get to that when we get to Revelation 11. But they're part of the first resurrection. And then finally, the faithful tribulation saints who were martyred, they're going to be resurrected. So there's your first resurrection. Probably with the remnant of Israel that are alive at his glorious return. So all the righteous are resurrected, given resurrected bodies like Jesus. So if you think about it, technically, technically, 
There's a pre, mid, and post-resurrection. And that's why I think a lot of people get confused. Because depending on which group of people you're talking about, church very well may be uh, raptured and resurrected, because there's a resurrection then too, before the seven years. We know the witnesses that are slain are resurrected in the middle of the week, mid. And it seems like the tribulation saints are resurrected post. So could it be that everyone's right in some way? Yes, yes, and yes? I don't know. We'll find out. It's worth considering. So the resurrection of the righteous, it's similar to the rapture of the church, and we believe this will happen before the beginning of that last seven-year time period. Now, the wicked, let's talk about the second resurrection, because Revelation chapter 20 tells us all about this. The wicked will be raised to shame and everlasting contempt, but this doesn't take place until all the way at the end of the millennial kingdom. So while resurrections of the righteous have been happening since Christ rose from the dead, the second resurrection will not take place. It's a one-time event. happens at the end of time. And we're told in Revelation 20 that the small and the great, they appear before the great white throne judgment. And their names are not found in the book of life. And therefore, they're cast into the lake of fire. This is going to include every single person who's unfaithful, who died, rejecting God and Jesus Christ throughout the ages. That is the fate of the person that rejects Jesus Christ. You understand that? That's why we preach the gospel, because we don't want anyone to be in the lake of sulfur. We don't want anyone to spend eternity apart from Christ. They don't need to, they don't have to, but many choose to. And that is the reason we preach the gospel in love. So this completes the resurrection of the wicked. It's called the second resurrection in Revelation 20. So there you go. That's not a timeline. Let's call it an outline, according to Scripture, as to when things will happen and what will happen. But the righteous in God and Jesus Christ will inherit an everlasting glory, the everlasting glory of the heavens for all eternity. Amen? And if you read it in verse 3, it says, Those who are wise. Are you wise today? Say amen. That was real convincing. Are you wise today? Say amen. 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 They're going to shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness. Are you leading many to righteousness? I guess you're not. Are you preaching the gospel? Amen. I hope you are. Hopefully you're leading many to righteousness because then you're going to shine like the stars forever and ever. Just a beautiful poetic description of eternity. And then we're told, the angel tells Daniel, but you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Now, a couple of last comments and then we'll close. We're called wise because we impart God's wisdom to mankind. We're called righteous because we lead many to God's righteousness. But brothers and sisters... Daniel was told to close it up and seal it. You know why? He only really had half the story. And we'll finish our study next week, and then we'll get into the book of Revelation, and we'll get the other half of the story, or maybe even more than half of the story. You see, he was instructed to keep this revelation kind of secret until the time of the end was closer. In fact, the book of Daniel makes very little sense to us without the book of Revelation to unpack it and understand it. So John, when he received the revelation was instructed by an angel not to keep his revelation secret because the time was near. Interesting. Daniel was told, not yet. John's told, the time is now. 
And that was 2,000 years ago. Or not nearly too close to 2,000 years ago. So if we were near 2,000 years ago, how near are we today? Nearer, certainly. I think very near. Well, the angel revealed something very cryptic in verse 4. And a lot of people have had fun with this. But the angel revealed that many will go here and there to increase knowledge at the time of the end. What does that mean? Well, we can guess, but we really don't know exactly. When it happens, we'll say, oh, that's what it meant. But until then, it may reveal that there will be a better understanding of Daniel's prophecies as they unfold. I think that's already been fulfilled, to be honest. I think that's probably the way to interpret this verse. Because of the book of Revelation, the knowledge has increased. It also may reveal that some people believe it will be, there'll be an increase in education and knowledge and technology and world travel during the time of the end. Well, that's true. That's happened. Maybe that's what it means. And it may reveal that there will be a desperate desire to seek out the knowledge of the truth. And that's certainly true. Lots of people are trying to figure out how this is going to work. But brothers and sisters, the time of the end is not yet here. But it's obviously very close. Are you ready? Are you wise? Are you leading others to righteousness? Because it's not important if you have everything lined up in your mind as to how it's going to happen. You know what's important? Where are you going to spend eternity? If you know Jesus Christ, you have that answer. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you have that answer as well. It's your choice. We pray that you will choose Jesus. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those that cry out to God and acknowledge Jesus' death on the cross for their sins, his resurrection to bring newness of life, who are waiting, anxiously awaiting his return, Those that love Jesus and serve him and call themselves disciples, not just Christians, disciples, know that no matter what happens tomorrow, whether there's an invasion of this country, whether there's a nuclear annihilation, it doesn't matter because we know Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We trust you. We love you. And we know that you are sovereign in control of all things. And it's fascinating to consider these things, but actually the details are incidental. The truths, the facts of your love, your death on the cross, and the promise of resurrection and eternal life, that's what's important in this, in this section of Scripture. That you are in control, and that as we give control of our lives to you, we know that you, who began a good work in us, will be faithful to complete it, We know that you can be trusted because you're working all things, even tribulation, all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. We pray to be those people if we're not already. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.